Well, tonight we're looking at Article 10 of Free Will, or the absence of it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it is, uh, of all of the articles, well, there are a couple, there are a few, that um, various people are uncomfortable with and try to twist it and manipulate this article to say something that it isn't saying. I sat myself under a, uh, an Anglican instructor who um, used Article 10 to persuade, to persuade me that we do indeed have free will, that this is what it says. Um, and as I hope to demonstrate to you, it, it certainly does not say that. Um, in, some of the, in some of the older uh, instructions on the article, some of the older vo volumes, when the author gets to the 10th article, it's literally half a page of instruction because they just don't want to say anything about it at all, except that it's a response to the Anabaptists. Um, it's much more than that. It is a response to the, to the Anabaptists, um, but it's much more than that as well because the, uh, the context is, uh, is long and deep here in, in, um, in the history of the church. So let's, let's read it together. And what I've done tonight, you can see what we're, we're going to do, I've, I've created a, a sort of a, a theological miscellany here. And we're going to read through three of the, the main figures that are, that are uh, fueling the vocabulary of Article 10. That is Augustine from his Enchiridion, which is like an instruction manual, uh, in Caridian, the instruction manual on faith, hope, and love. And then Calvin, his volume on the bondage and liberation of the will. Calvin wrote this against a Dutch Roman Catholic priest named Piggyus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know. That's a very fitting snort. Uh, and then uh, Martin Luther, his bondage of the will, which, which is, um, if, you know, you, if you're... If you get a kick out of Martin Luther's use of, of uh, his penchant for name-calling, then you have to read The Bondage of the Will, because he just lets go completely uh, and says some really funny things to Erasmus, such as, you know, your, your icy distance from the Word of God is giving me chills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're, that's, that's how I decided to approach this tonight. Uh, I think that... I felt that this is something that we can get lost in, and so I wanted to use these three theologians to guide us. And we can stop and we can talk along the way as we read through um, various things that they have to say. I, I do need to say from the beginning that the tenth article on the will of man is as much about the will of God, that is the, the um, inviolability and the supremacy of the will of God, as it is about the incompetence and the impotence of the will of man. Where's my Bible? And so, um, as we as we um, we begin, we need to remember the the twofold assertion by the Psalms. It says it twice that God is in the heavens and He has done in the heavens and upon the earth whatsoever He is pleased. That's the biblical assertion of God's. Um, unstoppable will. God does what he wants to do. He does that in heaven and he does that on earth and no one stops him. That is, God's will is never, never uh, impeded. Even where, even where ostensibly it's, it's like invisibly frustrated. That is, God accomplishes his will 
even where we reject it, ostensibly. Well, having said that, let's, let's read uh, what the article has to say. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural or native strength and by his own good works to faith. He, he can't get to faith. <laughs> and he can't get to calling upon God. He can't turn and he can't prepare himself. Now, it's interesting, that language of turn. You remember the, the uh, prayer of Jeremiah? Uh, um, turn us, O Lord, and we shall be turned. That is, uh, and here's the language of, of conversion, turning 180 degrees. So Adam can't, by his natural strength and good works, arrive at faith. And Adam can't, by himself, even call upon God. <laughs> Uh, wherefore, we have no power to do good works that are pleasant and acceptable to God in any way. Without the grace of God by Christ preventing us. This is the language of prevenient grace. Uh, prevenient grace. Preventing, it doesn't mean here stopping us, but that it comes before. It has to come before um, as a work in us. So that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that goodwill. So not only must God give us the goodwill, but once we have the goodwill, then the grace of God has to continue to work with us to sustain and make and keep that will good. So it's not like God gives us something and then we're autonomous agents. We just, we have it, we've got the free will, and we can run with it, we can do what we please, right? That's not what the article says. He gives us the gift, and then he has to nourish and sustain it and keep it alive. And so that when Paul says, you know, in him we live and move and have our being, that's exactly uh, what we read here. That is, the sustaining power of God is necessary to the maintenance of that goodwill. Um, so a, a couple of things, or at least one, one significant thing here. Um, the language here, um, we have no power without the grace of God that we may have a good will. So that means without the grace of God, the will of humanity, fallen humanity, is not good. Now, it doesn't speak here in terms of, um, in terms of degrees. It's simply not good. Now, if it's not good, it's necessarily bad. It's bad. The, the will of man, fallen man, is just bad, plain bad. Uh, it's corrupt, it's rotten, um, and nothing, nothing pleasant comes out of it. And so it's, it's absolutely impossible here to read the 10th article and to arrive at any conclusion that the will of man, subsequent to the fall, prior to grace, has any uh, uh, native goodness to it whatsoever. It is thoroughly rotten. Now, what that means... That, that is what we need to unpack here to, tonight. Um, before we read through these three giants, uh, Augustine, now one of the reasons why I've chosen Augustine, uh, Calvin, and Luther um, is because it goes from Augustine to Calvin to Luther. Calvin's his own reader of Augustine. Calvin loves Augustine too. I don't think that um, Calvin was quite the student of the fathers, at least of Augustine that, that Luther was. Um, 
but Calvin's a good student of the fathers, and he, he, but he does gather this from Luther as well. Um, and it is Augustine, and it is Luther, and it is Calvin that are shaping and molding this 10th article. Um, I want to say right away that when the article asserts that we do not have a good will, it is not saying that we don't have a, a will. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it's bad, it's corrupt. But it's not saying that we don't have the, the power of volition, the power of choice. Human beings have to have choice because that's part of the faculties of the soul. And so there's this distinction in theology that the fall doesn't affect the, the, the natural faculties. They're, they're left, by and large, some theologians will talk about their degradation to some degree, but by and large, the intellect, the will, the affections, um, and some other, they, they talk about the fancy, and, and, um, but those three especially, the intellect, the will, the emotions, the structure is, in, it, it retains its integrity. The structure of the faculties retain their integrity. The direction of the faculties are completely lost. And we talked about this last time when we discussed uh, original righteousness and the loss of that. The bent, the bent is, is changed completely uh, in the faculties. Um, and so the will and its, its power of, of, if we want to talk about its power of choice, that it's something that can choose, the integrity of that ability to choose remains and is retained. The, the, um, the bent of it, or the orientation of it, is fundamentally changed subsequent to the fall. And that's the important distinction that we have to make. So people will say to you, and you know, whenever you're talking to people about theology, I mean, this just comes up all the time, right? Are, do you mean to say to me that we don't have free will? You know, and that it just kind of, we need to be very careful that we, we maintain this distinction that the structures of the faculty remain. We can choose. We just can't choose rightly. Um, and and uh, that's important. If we lost the faculty of the will, we would lose our humanity. So we have to uh, think in those terms. Okay, let's just read through. <clears throat> let's read through together, uh, beginning with, with Augustine. And I've, I've taken some, a couple of his quotes to talk about the idea of God's, of God's sovereignty and his will, because this is important. Um, the, the article on the, fr on the free will, come on in, uh, Burns. <laughs> You're just in time. Yes. The integrity of the faculty is, is, remains. But the structure. What's the other half of it? The other, the other part that's, that doesn't remain yeah. is the orientation of the faculty, where, where it's directed to, to the, the, the bent, the, the disposition uh, of that faculty. It, um, it's lost entirely. <clears throat> the power to choose rightly. We'll look at, well, there are some more distinctions as well when we get to Luther that will be helpful. Humanity, humanity prides itself on few things so much as the, the power of free will. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the, the god of modern man. If you've seen the film, the, uh, the uh, Something Something Bureau, the, um, with Matt Damon. The Adjustment Bureau. Oh, it's a, it's a hymn. It's a hymn to the victory of the human will. 
that, that is a human will. The human will can best fate itself, right? This is at the end of the movie. They get to the offices of fate. And so strong and so resilient and indomitable is the strength of the will of Matt Damon that fate bows down and says, you know, you just, you just go and do what you want to do. We honor the strength of your will. Well, um, so don't be surprised. The Matrix is the opposite. Right, yeah. Well, Rush's song, Free Will, is not, is not the Matrix. <laughs> Rush's song, Free Will, is more the adjustment. Don't be surprised when, when um, the, the world in its pride does not think well of what you have to say about the loss of human freedom. So let's begin now looking at number one, Augustine, and we're just going to read through these slowly. I can stop where you want me to stop, and we'll allow these, these theologians to guide us tonight. Augustine says, nor can we doubt, now this is speaking to the, now to the triumph or the, the power and the strength of God's will. Let me say that again, because Jim and, and Brian weren't here. The, the doctrine of, the, of, the, the, of the, the will of man in the articles is, is only understood in the context that is the failure of man's will and the inability, the impotence of man's will, is only understood properly alongside the potency of the will of God and the omnipotency of the will of God. They, they go together. They have to work together. Um, because if God's will was not omnipotent, <laughs> then the utter catastrophe of the demolition of the will of man, God could do nothing about it. As it stands, that, that God's omnipotent will takes this disaster, and he uses the disaster to affect his holy purpose. And that's what people just can't quite grasp. Um, so Augustine says, nor can we doubt that God does well even in the permission of what is evil. Whenever you talk to someone about theodicy, speaking of Milton, Nathan, um, or you, you, um, you walk into a philosophy department, um, that's the, the, the one thing that they will not allow, that God in his wisdom and love and power will permit and use evil for his glory and for our good. That is to, to, um, to magnify goodness through evil. They will not allow that um, because they, they, they simply can't, they can't grasp it. It's, it's beyond reason. But Augustine says he does. He does well even in the permission, and again and again, Augustine will say, this is not bare permission. God, when, when, when we talk about, you know, it, he, he doesn't will the evil, but he permits it. Um, Augustine's saying, God's not like, well, uh, you know, well, okay, you know, okay. <laughs> it's willing permission. So he, he actually, there's, there's, there's willful Design and permit when, when he talks about permission, it's not this reluctant kind of thing. For he permits it only in the justice of his judgment. And surely all that is just is good. Although, therefore, evil, insofar as it is evil, is not a good, yet the fact that evil 
as well as good exists, is a good. Why? Because God permits it in the justice of his judgment. For if it were not a good, that evil should exist. Its existence would not be permitted by the omnipotent God, who, without doubt, can as easily refuse to permit what he does not wish as to bring about what he does wish. And if we do not believe this, the very first sentence of our creed is endangered, which wherein we profess to believe in God, the Father Almighty. For he is not truly called Almighty if he cannot do whatsoever he pleases, or if the power of his Almighty will is hindered by the will of any creature whatsoever. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? We say that every Sunday. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, according to Augustine, no Arminian can say this. Why? Because they believe that the creature hinders the will of the Creator. He wills that all men shall be saved. And he goes to various camps of the earth and he beckons them and he calls them and they say, we refuse your will. You may will it, but we say no to you. So much for the almightiness of God, says Augustine. So it's, it's a wonderful, I, I think that it, it invites us to a new appreciation of our creed every Sunday. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, he cannot be resisted. <laughs> We're going to see this coming shortly up here, but, but the, the, the notion of God's omnipotence and almightiness, and the fact that he cannot be resisted, is the only hope and consolation and strength of our prayers. For if he weren't such a God, it would be utterly vain to pray to him be hopeless what are we doing we hope that you can do this god are you up for it you know um well he says yeah you can pray to me i'll try i'll do my best but just so you know every single person might resist me <laughs> right it, it undercuts the powers of our prayers okay so god god is god is almighty b we must inquire in what sense is said of God what the Apostle has most truly said. Who will have all men to be saved? For as a matter of fact, not all, nor even a majority are saved. Now where do we get that? Where does that come out? Not, a, not even a majority are saved. Many are called, few are chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. Wide is the, narrow is the way, or sorry, broad is the way. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in therein. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Um, either Jesus said that or he didn't say that. Um, and many, many Christians just want to re re refuse that. And uh, so whenever you hear these tales about a world end, uh, end, of, the, end of day revival where everyone's going to be swept into the kingdom, it's not the Bible. Someone, someone uh, uh, dreamed that up after a stiff drink of something, but it's not in the Bible. For as a matter of fact, um, uh, not even a majority are saved. So that it would seem that what God wills is not done. Man's will, the omnipotent will of man, interfering with and hindering the will of God. When we ask the reason why all men are not saved, the ordinary answer is because men themselves are not willing. 
Now, see how that just puts all the all the all of the importance and the the strength and the will of man. It's still the same. Nothing's new under the sun. This is still the the majority teaching, even in many camps of of Christianity. Why aren't they saved? Well, because they're not willing to do it. Our Lord says plainly, however, in the gospel, when I'm braiding the impious city, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not, as if the will of God had been overcome by the will of man. And when the weakest stood in the way with their want of will, the will of the strongest, that is God, could not be carried out. And where is that omnipotence? Which has done all that it pleased on earth and in heaven. This is the Psalms again, those two uh, Psalms. If God willed to gather together the children of Jerusalem and did not accomplish it. Or rather, Jerusalem was not willing that her children should be gathered together, but even though she was unwilling, he gathered together as many of her children as he wished. For he does not will some things and do them, and will others and not do them. He hath done all that he pleased in heaven and on earth. <laughs> this is just, this is, um, this is solid stuff. See, who will be so foolish, Augustine here again, and blasphemous, as to say that God cannot change the evil wills of men, whichever, whenever, and wheresoever he chooses, and direct them to what is good. Why? Because to man belongs weakness. To God belongs strength. And where are we now going to turn the, turn the tables and say to man and his weakness belongs strength, and to God and his strength belongs weakness? Um, it turns everything topsy-turvy. D. <clears throat> St. Paul perceives that the whole human race was condemned in its rebellious head by a divine judgment so just that if not a single member of the race had been redeemed, no one could justly have questioned the justice of God, and that it was right that those who are redeemed should be redeemed in such a way as to show by the greater number who are unredeemed and left in their just condemnation what the whole race deserved. And whither the judgment of God would lead even the redeemed, did not his undeserved mercy interpose, so that every mouth might be stopped of those who wish to glory in their own merits, and that he glorieth, and that he that glorieth might glory in the Lord. Now this is very difficult for us to understand, but but what Augustine says here, following St. Paul, is that God chooses the, the fewness of his elect against the vast backdrop against what the unjust have deserved in their damnation to showcase the brilliance of his mercy. The diamonds against the black cloth, glittering and shining to his glory, so that every mouth might be stopped. <laughs> that might choose to or, or seek to boast in its own, in its own merits. Um, you know, this is not easy material to, to swallow, but it, it does need to be, I think, faced squarely by us today in this world that just, we're not genuinely directed to this, these kinds of thoughts, by and large, in the church. Um, it is God's justice and his wrath 
um, are wholly deserved, and they serve a purpose in his economy. E. <clears throat> e. Uh, can a lost man, here we now get more specifically to the, the freedom of the will, can a lost man do anything by the free determination of his own will? Again I say, God forbid. For it was by the evil use of his free will that man destroyed both it and himself. For as a man who kills himself must, of course, be alive when he kills himself, but after he has killed himself ceases to live and cannot restore himself to life, so when man by his own free will sinned, then sin, being victorious over him, the freedom of his will was lost. He who is the servant of sin is free to sin. <laughs> and hence he will not be free to do right until, being freed from sin, he shall begin to be the servant of righteousness. But whence comes this liberty to do right to the man who is in bondage and sold under sin, except he be redeemed by him who said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And before this redemption is wrought in a man, when he is not yet free to do what is right, how can he talk of the freedom of his will and his good works, except he be inflated by that foolish pride of boasting, which the apostle restrains when he says, by grace are you saved through faith. So here, here now, again, Augustine is not saying that the individual loses the faculty of choice, but he loses the ability to choose well. He loses, or she loses the ability to choose rightly. And all that we can do is sin. Now, what's the obvious question that is uh, to kind of, uh, what's the obvious question that confronts us? Let's pretend you're, the, you're, you're all pagans. And I say to you, I say to you, St. Augustine has said that everything, the only thing that you're free to do is to sin. What would you say to me? Let's say we're in a, or let's just say we're in a coffee shop and we're, I'm witnessing to you. And I say, all you can do is sin. I, I volunteer at the food bank every Christmas. And I... Right. Chris volunteers at the food bank. What do you do, Josh? Uh, I joined him. <laughs> 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 Jim, Jim sings in the choir. <laughs> you see, you know, um, Tim, Tim, like engineers stuff. <laughs> they build bridges, right? You're gonna have people saying, "Well, I don't. I, I'm not a bad guy." So, what does Augustine mean here? Does he mean that there's no, you know, because Augustine will talk about the the splendid vices. Of the, of the pagan philosophers. He will talk about Plato and Socrates, these virtuous, noble guys. You know, you read the, if you've never read of the, the death of Socrates, it's, you, know, you want to start crying. Plato's account of, of uh, Socrates almost martyred him to his love for truth, unwilling. Um, but what aren't these guys able to do? How is it that they're sinning in all of their ostensible virtue how is it that Augustine can say they're constantly sinning? It's all that, all that they can do. 
They aren't glorifying God, they glorify themselves. Exactly. It's not done to God. That is, they, ha- they do not have the ability to love God more than anything else. That's the one thing that they can't do. That's the one thing that I con- constantly am in prayer for, for my kids, and I, I let them know it, that the, the, and I say, remind them, the, the creator's better than the creature. The maker's better than the made. And I pray for my kids that God would give them, as he's, I believe he's working in them by grace, that, that he would give them the power to love God more than anything else. That's the one thing that the, the world doesn't have. They can do all manner of, they can let out blood till they're white in the face at the blood bank. But they can't love God more than anything else. They can't do it for his honor and for his glory. It's impossible. And it's a great way, speaking of witnessing and, and going to the various parts of our city and talking, and it's a wonderful way to what Calvin would talk about being uh, quorum Deo in the presence of God, that all of our pretended virtue and goodness melts away once we bring it to the question of God. Can, do you love God more than anything else? Can you love God more than anything else? Is it possible? Now, they might throw back a number of objections to that. Well, I don't even believe in God in the first place. But it's, it's, uh, it's important to bring this to people's attention with respect to righteousness because righteousness has to do with our attitude to God before it has to do with our attitude towards one another. Because you can keep the second table of the Ten Commandments. You can keep them. But it's the, first command, it's the first table that gives value to the second table. This is Luther's first commandment, righteousness. That, that unless you love God more than anything else, you're, you're, you're breaking those other commandments. Because they only, they only have their integrity, the second table, from thou shalt, thou shalt obey your, your mother and father down to thou shalt not want your neighbor's donkey. Those things only have their integrity in as much as you are loving God more than anything else. So what Calvin, or sorry, what Augustine means here is that without the first commandment being kept, all the horizontal commandments lose their nature. They lose their meaning. Um, Not entirely, but but with respect to righteousness before God, they do. And so all that we can do is sin. F, should anyone be inclined to boast of the freedom of the will, let him listen to the same preacher of grace, when he says, For it is God which works in you, both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. And so in another place, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It's not the will, it's not the activity of the man, but it's simply sheer mercy of God. Um, okay, so you can see how very... Uh, biblical Augustine is in all of this, um, and how very Pauline, and how very far, in some cases, the Roman Catholic Church completely moved away from the teaching of Augustine. Um, it has been rightly said that the Reformation was a revival of Augustinianism. Um, it's a revival of Augustinian thought. Luther found it, Calvin found it, and they revived it. Calvin. Now, this is his uh, the bondage and in uh, liberation of the will. It's pro- maybe a lesser known volume by Augustine for for some people. Uh, he wrote this in the 16th century in response to a Roman Catholic priest named Pigius. He was Dutch, and uh, 
Um, Calvin has this to say about, about the nature of the bondage of the will. A bound will, he says, is one which, because of its corruptness, is held captive under the authority of evil desires, so that it can choose nothing but evil. Even if it does so of its own accord and gladly, without being driven by an external impulse. This is important for Calvin when he talks about, when he talks about uh, the will, that, that um, we, we do it of our own accord, that it's not outside pressure, but it's, it's, it comes from within and it goes without. Otherwise, it's coercion. If we don't sin voluntarily, says Calvin, we're just being coerced, and he wants to avoid that. We allow that man has choice and that it is self-determined, so that if he does anything evil, it should be imputed to him and to his own voluntary choosing. We deny that the choice is free because through man's innate wickedness, it is of necessity driven to what is evil and cannot seek anything but evil. Now, once again, it doesn't mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry is a Hitler, but it does mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry outside of grace can't do anything to the glory of God, and therefore even the virtue becomes corrupt. Um, He goes on to say, We say that man's mind is smitten with blindness, so that of itself it can in no way reach the knowledge of the truth. We say that his will is corrupted by wickedness, so that he can neither love God nor obey his righteousness. That's the, that's the, uh, the key there. Man and woman outside of grace can't love God, and they can't obey his rules uh, in the order that they're meant to be obeyed. First table, second table. Um, now, I think it's crucial here that we, and we're going to see this again, but in F, when we are ministering in the church and when we're ministering to people, we have to recognize that this is their state. They can't. <laughs> they, it's impossible. You can, you can argue till you're blue in the face. Apart from the grace of God, they simply can't do it. They're completely blind, right? And we see this in Paul. You guys are studying First uh, Corinthians. We we see that that they've been blinded by Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers that they cannot see the light of uh, of God's grace. Um, it's important that we recognize this. Uh, see, people commonly imagine that man is prepared to receive the grace of God by movement of his own. Augustine responds in this way. This is refuted by the apostle when he says, what do you have that you have not received? From whom do you have it, but from him who distinguishes you from another, to whom he has not given what he has given to you? What do you have that God has not given to you? So there's nothing that we, can, that we have that is a, um, an openness to the gospel that God has not given us uh, in the first place. I put an arrow here, these two lines, distinguishing, discriminating grace. Grace is discriminating. Why? Because God discriminates between one person and the other. He gives to Tylene. He doesn't give to Tylene's worker. He distinguishes. And <laughs> that is hateful language in, in, uh, in our world. And uh, I think the soul, re- 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 uh, the soul of man 
revolts against is how dare God choose who's going to receive grace and who's not going to receive grace? How dare he? Kind of irrespective of us. But that, the Bible says, is God's um, prerogative. He distinguishes, he discriminates for reasons all his own that he doesn't reveal. Um, and it, it's just as a note, it is important that we, we don't um, try to get into to God's kind of master bedroom and try to uh, seek out the secrets of God that he's not revealed to us. The reasons for his elections are not known to us, and they're not to be guessed. That's God's, that's God's business, it's not ours. And Luther has some strong words about that. I, I just put here number D, I letter D, because I thought it was just funny. Uh, I trust that I have treated this topic in such a way from his barking, that from his barking, Piggyus will gain little in the hearing of those who have any intellect uh, whatsoever. Calvin learns his, um, his insults, I think, from Luther. E, God prepares a good will in man so that it may be helped, and he helps it when it has been prepared. Now, do you see that I bolded that? Why? Because it's exactly what it says in, in the article. Um, that is, God um, comes before, he prevents us with grace, that we may have a good will, and working with us, when we have that goodwill. And uh, Calvin says, God prepares a goodwill a man, comes before, so that it may be helped, that is, that it may have a capacity. And then once, it, once it's been prepared, he helps it along the way. <clears throat> so I, I'm, I'm a pretty strong believer that um, uh, the, uh, the article has really, has lifted this right from Calvin, uh, from his work in the bondage of the will. The Anglican Church, by the way, the Anglican Church was was heavily Calvinistic, um, and it's the articles. <clears throat> the articles uh, reflect that. F. Paul declares that all those who plant or water are nothing. How so? Except that the ministers of Christ achieve nothing more by their teaching and preaching than they would if they're striking the air with their breath. But why is it that their labor is so useless? Except because. They are speaking to stones until by his miraculous and secret operation God introduces into people's minds and breathes into their hearts what by their own efforts could not reach beyond their ears. So Paul concludes that God alone who gives the increase is everything. Well, that puts a new, that puts a, a certain light, doesn't it, on the ministry of the church and how we should uh, understand people coming into our midst, how we should understand um, mission work, how we should understand uh, ministry in whatever capacity, that we are going to people, and unless there's a sovereign move of the Spirit of God, they are, as, they are stones. We can talk to them all day long. Um, and I, I, I do think it, it, it demands from God's people that we we consider the importance of, of, of prayer and of seeking the face of God for, for a waft of the Spirit in, in our midst, because nothing else is going to do the trick. That is preaching alone. See what Calvin says here? They can do nothing more by their teaching and preaching than just striking the air with their breath. Um, the operation of the Spirit of God has to be simultaneous. And so it's a mistake. 
it's a mistake to think that simply teaching the Bible is um, going to affect the good of the kingdom. The need for the Spirit of God to take that and to, uh, to make it enter into someone's heart. And I, I do think, I mean, this is where we, we, when we, whenever we start to talk about prayer and God's sovereignty, you know, we twist ourselves in knots. Um, but in God's economy, he has, he has joined this um, miraculous and secret operation that, that Calvin talks about this to the operation of prayer. And we do need to be praying as God's people for a miraculous and secret operation in the midst of uh, the church, in our children's lives, in the lives of the ungodly that are coming into our midst, and beseeching God for that, recognizing that we are nothing. We're nothing and God is everything. Um, okay, Martin Luther, this is his bondage of the will. Um, and uh, Luther writes this against uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who wrote a contrary volume on the freedom of the will, his, um, his diatribe. And Luther says this, he says, if we do not want to drop this term, free will, altogether, which would really be the safest and most Christian thing to do. <laughs> we may still in good faith teach people to use it to credit man with free will in respect, now here's the great distinction, not of what is above him, that is God, but of what is below him. However, with regard to God, and in all that bears on salvation or damnation, he has no free will but as a captive, prisoner, bond slave, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. So what Luther means here is that, you know, the, the average Joe or Joanne can go to Baskin Robbins and choose which flavor they want. How many flavors, 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins? They can go, they can choose tiger, they can choose bubble gum, they can choose green tea ice cream if they want to, but they're free to choose those things. But with respect to God, they are utterly captive and, and a bond slave, unless grace has given them the will that they lack, has transformed them. And every person, therefore, is in bondage to the will of Satan. Again, perhaps we don't think about that as much as we ought to, but outside of Christ, there's only two places to be, right? <clears throat> you, are, you are a servant of Satan, Paul says, you follow the prince of the course of the air. You're, you're in bondage to his will, or you're, you're, you're a, a, doula, a doulos of God. You're a servant of God. Um, <clears throat> and we need to think in those categories. There's no limbo. There's no limbo. I do think this has very certain applications to infant baptism. But um, there is a certain teaching that says, um, you know, until, until children reach the age of accountability, they're in the magic realm of nowhere. <laughs> they don't belong to anybody. They don't belong to God. They don't belong to Satan. Um, I, that's very hard to, to demonstrate from the Bible. B, um, free will without God's grace, Luther says, is not free at all but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself to good. I give you full permission to enlarge the power of free will as much as you like. Make it angelic. Make it divine if you can. 
But once you add this doleful postscript that it is ineffective apart from God's grace, straight away you rob it of all of its power. So, again, for Luther, the faculty is there, the, the operation of choice is there, but it can't turn its head up. See, if we meant by power of free will, the power which makes human beings fit subjects to be caught up by the Spirit and touched by God's grace, as creatures made for eternal life or eternal death, we should have a proper definition. That's all that free will means. True free will is the ability to be caught up by God's Spirit and to have the capacity for eternal life. And then finally uh, here, the Christian's chief and only comfort in every adversity lies in knowing that God does not lie, but he brings all things to pass immutably, and that his will cannot be resisted, it cannot be altered, and it cannot be impeded. If you hesitate to believe that God foreknows and wills all things, not contingently, that is, he doesn't, he doesn't will them because he, he sees something, but he wills it absolutely, necessarily, and immutably. How can you believe, trust, and rely on his promises? So, Luther, rightly in the bondage of the will, understands that the poverty of and the uh, incapacity of the human will is to be understood in the omnipotence of God's will. And if we don't believe that God effects his will invariably, that it will always happen unfailingly or come to pass, then we have no relationship to the promises of God. We have no sense of them. We, we have to believe in the indomitable will of God if we're to grasp the promises. And if we don't grasp the promises, then we simply can't pray. We can't pray. We, our prayers mean nothing without the idea that God's will will be accomplished uh, no, matter, no matter what. Now, um, how, does this, um, how does this doctrine of the sovereign will of God come into play with um, our prayers or our lack thereof? All of us are guilty of prayerlessness. It's the darling sin of most Christians. Um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say the Bible simply holds both things together and that God's will will inevitably, invariably be accomplished and we have not because we ask not. And we have to somehow hold those two things together. Um, but without understanding the sovereignty of God, um, our, prayers, our prayers are meaningless. You know that the old uh, maxim, I, you, know, um, uh, you know, pray like a Calvinist, preach like an Armenian. It's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, the, you, you understand what's there, right? That you, 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 you invite people to come, you invite all people to come. I think we should pray like a Calvinist and preach like a, Cal, uh, preach like a Calvinist. But um, when we pray, when we pray, we have to believe that God will do what he promises to do because his will will always be affected. It will never fail. Um, 
And this is certainly the case with those he wants to save. Why? It's not up to them. They're slaves. They can't respond. They won't respond until God wills it to happen. And every single person that God wills to be saved will be saved. Because it does not lie in man's will or man's running, but it lies in God's mercy and his distinguishing discriminating grace. Um, okay, that's, that's kind of walking through a lot of heavy material and a lot of, uh, of um, heavy doctrines here. Are there any thoughts that you have that occur to you about this uh, uh, doctrine of the bondage of the will? We should not doubt that the Anglican doctrine, Article 10, we should not doubt that it itself doubts the bondage of the will in any way. It asserts it very clearly. And I think it takes up the language of Calvin, and it certainly takes up the, log the logic of Augustine and Luther. Um, does anything occur to you in the, in the description of that doctrine of the absence of the free will that is a concern or a, uh, just a kind of a corollary idea in the midst of this? Does it affect, how does it affect our life as a church? What we do, for instance. How does the, or to rephrase the question, if we, if we deny this doctrine of the, of the bondage of the will, um, how might that demonstrate itself in the life of the church? If we were to believe opposite. If we're to believe the opposite of this, opposite as 90% of the church does. I think that we would see more seeker sensitivity. We'd see, we'd see much more seeker sensitivity, right? Because our, our emphasis now is going to be on working, working that, that native, native openness. Working with that native openness, and we want to be sensitive to that. It's like a little fish that we're, or a big or a fish we're trying to reel in, and we're being sensitive to that native um, ability and openness to the gospel, and we, we don't want to offend it. I think a lot of the seeker sensitivity that we see in the church is, is rooted in the idea that there is a kind of a native um, openness in all people to the gospel. You know, we hear that, that there's a kind of, it's, there's a, there's something in the air. There's a, there's an openness, there's a longing for the supernatural in the 21st century. There's seekers. The world is filled with seekers. They're seeking something, right? The journey is written in the hearts of men. It is written in the hearts of men, right. Uh, but they hate the source of it. If it were just that somehow people are confused, and they just can't see, and our job is to kind of clarify things for them and not to scare them off, then we might go about things differently. But it's not that they are just confused. The Bible doctrine is that they hate it. They hate the truth. They hate the gospel. They hate the idea. The heart of man is so bound in its sin that it rejects it and hates it desperately, even though on the outside they, feel, they seem like perfectly sensible and... Um, uh, virtuous people. You ask them, "Do you love God?" Did you, you know, I don't hate God. They will say, "I don't hate. I don't hate it." Um, 
but neither do they love it. Yes. I was just going to say that um, um, seeker sensitivity in a church is not in and of itself some great evil thing, but I think that the trend that you see within the church that would sway in that direction is that they distrust the power of the gospel. Yes, they do. Yeah. They distrust the power of the gospel to, to do its work. Uh, under the demonstration of the Spirit, the secret miraculous work that Calvin talks about. Um, and the, the problem with, with the seeker sensitivity, which I think, again, in almost every case, it's not that, we're, that we as a church are going to go out of our way to offend people, right? Like, have, like a real stupid parking lot that doesn't make any sense, it's hard to get in and out of, or, or that our, you know, our washrooms are just dank and dirty, our, our nursery is, a, is like crawling with bugs and... Church is wicked, don't shower anybody. <laughs> I mean, that's just, we don't do that. But, but every, every seeker-sensitive movement tends to be rooted in a, in a concept that there's a native openness to the, to, to the, the message. Um, and an unwillingness to present the gospel, therefore, uh, in its integrity, which is terrible news. But the gospel's bad news before it's good news. The gospel pronounces judgment. You'll notice as we're going into, um, we're going into uh, Advent now, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. We'll be lighting our Advent candle. And uh, I've, I've gone back to the lectionary to follow the lectionary. The, the lectionary beautifully... Um, takes us through Advent. In the first Sunday, <laughs> the text, what do I choose from? Had a few options. It's all like judgment. Like it's all, it's Isaiah 1, Tim. And it's, uh, it's uh, Revelation 2, uh, which I'll be preaching from this Sunday. It's just, it's the, the message of judgment. It's the message of the doomsday. All these texts that the Lord is coming in to judge. And um, it's the message of repentance. And I think that, in these seeker-sensitive models, we, we, we tend to disbelieve in the power of God that he can take bad news and he can work the salvation of people through, through offending them. <laughs> only God can do that, right? Only, only a work of grace and of the Spirit can, can offend someone so desperately, make them feel so terrible, that that's going to lead to their, lead to their conversion. Um, and so we, we just think in a very human way in that, in, in, in that regard. Then we think that we ought to kind of um, make people feel more, more important. The job of the church is to make people feel like, you know, you're, you're loved. You're loved, right? You're loved. Our reading from the psalm this Sunday, Psalm 9, God turns the wicked into hell. <laughs> God hates um, and he judges Dare I say it? The sinner. Please say it, John. Yeah. God hates and God judges the sinner. He's a terrific hater, but he's a better lover. Um, and he loves with double delights. But we, we, need to, we need to trust the Lord and trust his gospel. We, we need to do that as a church and, and not be afraid of offending people. You begin to spell it out. The humanity is thoroughly corrupted. What does Jesus, what does John the Baptist say to these guys who come to him? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. You, 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 well, what's the, what's the association there? The, the snake. 
Satan. 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 Well, Jesus says the same thing. You don't know my Father. You think you've been worshiping Him? You know who you've been worshiping all along? He says, your Father is the devil, and you do His works. <laughs> Man! <laughs> I mean, where, where do you hear that God? Where do you hear that, that, that being enunciated anymore to, 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 to people? It's, it's, it's this rather your love, God loves you, uh, rather than spelling out the judgment and the predicament of the human person, that, that they are completely corrupted and they have no will to do anything but what is evil. It has to be spelled out. It has to be announced. Uh, or else the person will not feel desperate. They will not be enabled to feel a desperate need for God's grace. Why seek a physician if you don't feel sick? Right? That's, the, that's the problem. The, the human individual needs to feel completely vitiated. Completely and utterly vitiated. Now that can't happen apart from the spirit. We, like in Calvin says, we can, we can flap our lips on and on and on. Um, but the spirit will use our, our careful articulation. And so uh, we're going to see as a church, we're going to see people coming in. And they're going to hear the gospel. And they're going to they're gonna turn tail and run. It's, got, it's going to happen, and we have to be willing to see, to see that happen. We have to be willing to um, be that kind of church that is willing to drive people away and turn people away. As Peter says, too, right? The cornerstone becomes a stumbling block, right? A rock of um, yeah. offense. It's offensive. It's, a, it's foolishness to the Greeks. They're just gonna. Most of those guys at, at uh, on uh, the Areopagus, right? As soon as Paul starts talking about the resurrection, and not just remember the resurrection, when they say they heard about the resurrection, it wasn't just the resurrection, right? Because he talks about the resurrection as as the the man. What is what does the resurrection mean? It means that God now has appointed this man to judge. <laughs> the resurrection is the vindication of the judge that he has a right to judge. And so when they start to scoff at the resurrection, they're scoffing at the idea of, of, of judgment. And most of these guys, they, they kind of wag their heads at Paul on enough for, for, you know, from you, except for um, Dionysius and a couple others. And we, we have to be willing to do that. Um, and I would venture to say that in the, the majority of the church, this, this doctrine here, number 10, uh, the vitiation of the human will, the bondage of the will, simply isn't being spelled out for people. And um, when we begin to say to people, and I, this is my fear, when we begin to articulate from the pulpit that they can choose God whenever they want to, here's the offer, God's made the offer, it's up to you now to come and take it, it puts them at a, in, a, in a kind of a mindset of leisure, that they don't have, and doesn't make them to feel the predicament. We need to articulate this gospel and this truth in such a way that the individual feels helpless and trapped. You mean to tell me I can't choose God? You mean to tell me that it's not in my power to respond to the gospel unless God gives that to me? And there is a sense of desperation that we need to create. I, I, I find this again and again. I love reading Spurgeon's sermons. And uh, Spurgeon 
dramatically creates in people a sense of desperation. That unless God acts in your soul, you cannot reach out to him. And therefore, if he is acting in you, if you sense a stirring, don't let it pass by. It's a Lord, because if that goes, it may not ever come back. Now, that, of course, creates some theological implications, but, but you, can, uh, you can understand the, the, the sense that we need to create in people that, that it's not up to them. They don't have it in them, and they need to seek God. And we need to help people to understand that as if there are any of these inclinations, they need to begin to pray that God would help them to give their hearts to him. And I think we need to be counseling people in that way, as we have, as we do, as we have people coming into our midst and saying, I don't, I, I don't feel like I can believe. We need to be counseling people. That's right. You can't. You can't do it. This is supernatural. This is sovereign. But you need to ask God if there's any modicum of faith in any sense, then if you can only pray, God, give me the power to believe. And to help people to recognize that faith is an entirely supernatural thing. It's not a human thing. Um, that will get under the, that'll be a burr under the saddle of most everybody. When you tell them it's not in their power to do it. Um, because we worship ourselves. We worship ourselves. A hymn to humanity. Any other thoughts about, about the, the, the application or implications of the doctrine of the bondage of the will? When I talk to people about human depravity, usually the rebuttal that I receive is that because we're made in the image of God, mm-hmm. we've retained some of our goodness and therefore are not fully right. depraved. We've retained the structure and our ability to choose, yeah. But that's what they don't quite get, that we, we have some kind of... Um, are you talking about Christians here or, or unbelievers? Uh, Christians. Yeah, yeah. We we have uh, we have kind of. Um, um, but you see, what do you have that wasn't given to you? This is what uh, what uh, Calvin says. What do you have that wasn't given to you? And and if if um, we we begin to say that um, um, that something's native in us then we, it, it, it comes down to glory theft. This is what the reformers are so terribly afraid of. Lest we steal any glory from God. He won't put up with it. God will not put up. He is jealous for his glory. And, and uh, again, these are things that we may not hear from time to time, but God is jealous for his glory, and he will not put up with us claiming anything for ourselves. Um, and that's a, that's a dangerous place to be, I think. Um, 